Welcome to the One Last Sketch Podcast, a show dedicated to science fiction, fantasy, and history. I'm your host and devoted Adonian, set in the Yukon Territory, Michael, and I'm joined by these two profiterians from over in Ontario somewhere. I'm Corey. I'm Marie. <laughs> Definitely, I own lots of stuff and egoize constantly. Today, all three of us are going to egoize about Ursula K. Le Guin's The Dispossessed. It's a great book. Is that it? Yeah. Say that off the bat. Yeah. Yeah. This is what our second Leguin podcast, third Leguin work. Yes. Yep, this is our second Le Guin podcast. I do not have my thing open to check yep. which episode that was. But show notes! Yep. That's what show notes are for. Yep. And uh, spoilers! This- spoilers! We will probably tell you how this book ends. And it's actually really, I'd recommend reading it. And it it's kind of recent enough that you might not know how it goes. So stop, go read the book, and then come back and listen to our <laughs> dulcet tones tell you about why you enjoyed what you just read. Yeah, last time we talked about the left hand of darkness and the word for world is forest. With the left hand of darkness, the dispossessed is probably equal in regard. At least these are the two most famous of her works. Yeah, I'd heard of the dispossessed before um, I knew Ursula K. Le Guin. Like it would pop up in academic articles is like, like in The Dispossessed, blah, 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 whatever yeah, the article is talking about. It's kind of one of those books that's almost become canonical at this point. And even in pop culture stuff, like, I originally thought that it was just some kind of work of sort of general fiction. I didn't know it was a really cool sci-fi speculative fiction thing. So, because it was so, I had heard it commonly enough mentioned mm-hmm. in critical stuff. So, there you go. Yeah, it won both the Hugo and the Nebula Awards in 1975, mm-hmm. seeing that it came out in 74, mm-hmm. which is important because we always list the date for some reason. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's one of those cornerstone works that's been really influential and top of mind in at least academic studies of science fiction mm-hmm. since then. Mm-hmm. So what's it about, <clears throat> you might ask? Well... Complicated, well, but we'll do our best. <laughs> Plot-wise, there isn't much to it. This is basically about how the Ansible was invented, mm-hmm. a device that allows instantaneous communication across the galaxy that figures in mm-hmm. Le Guin's other books set in this Hainish cycle, as we tend to call mm-hmm. it. doesn't really have a name. Yeah, and it's basically <clears throat> ongoing as the word for world as force is happening in a completely different part of the galaxy, or even next door. It doesn't really matter if you don't have an Ansible. So. Yeah, well, the thing about the Hamish cycle, it's not like they're they need to be read in order or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It's just a shared universe that mm-hmm. created for exploring various metaphors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it has a very simple premise in that there is all all travel is sub light speed. Mm-hmm. So everyone moves at relativistic speeds, Mm -hmm. and that means you can travel somewhere within your lifetime, but you can't really return. Yeah. This immediately rules out the whole idea of galactic empires Mm -hmm. and so forth. Yeah. The other main cornerstone is that all the worlds were seeded, well, not all the worlds, all habitable worlds Mm -hmm. were seeded by Hain with colonists Mm -hmm. and we're all descended from a common source so all intelligent species across the galaxy are some form of human yeah and it's um i thought uh, and i think more in the word in uh, the left hand of darkness it was sort of suggested that the hain the hainish have kind of lost track of exactly who they put where and why (laughs) In some cases. Yeah, it happened. <laughs> they sent out all these ships, but because the Ansible wasn't invented yet when they did it, there was no way for there to be communication back and forth. And, uh, yeah, some record keeping didn't happen, so people are pretty, can be pretty alien to each other because they are. Time. Evolution. Yeah. <laughs> so, plot wise, that's a basic summary. What's more interesting about this book is its setting. That's really not the plot of the book. That's just the 
plot of the world around the characters. <laughs> well, the premise that this book is about the invention of the answer. Oh, yes. Okay. Now that we've cleared okay. that up, carry on. <laughs> so this book is usually remembered more for its setting than for its plot. It takes place on a binary planetary system. One planet is a green planet called Uras, or Uras, or whatever you want to call it. I call it Uras. And the other planet is Anares. About 150 years before this book starts, the humans on Uras expelled their um, anarchist population, which was led by a person named Leia Otto, and they had started revolutions and stuff that threatened governments there, so they sent them all off. To this other planet, set up a deal where those colonists will mine Anares and send back the minerals there, and then Uras will leave them alone, basically, to set up their anarchist non-state. Yeah, and it's it's not Dune, <laughs> but it's not really much better than Arrakis. <laughs> it's uh, dry, it's deserty. A- it's got one kind of plant phylum or something that's capable of living on there, not a whole lot in the way of animals at all, and a lot of dust. Well, the, there, are, <laughs> there are no land animals. Yeah. There are kind of like some green or more habitable patches, but yeah, I mean, overall, it's a fairly harsh world. It, it does require a lot of work just to make it livable. Yeah. Main, very little water on it. There is sea life, though. There is sea life. Otherwise, these people have to eke out an existence yep. on this planet that's suboptimal, whereas your ass is... Even more green than Earth. Yeah, it's like this. opulent. It's like a, a rainforest everywhere or something, but actually with fertile soil. So uh, the reason this is remembered for its setting is because Le Guin takes an anthropological approach to a lot of her works. And this is a careful exploration of what a functional anarchist society would look like and how it would interact Mm-hmm. in coming in contact with another society outside it that doesn't follow the same principles. Mm-hmm. My book and a lot of books are subtitled An Ambiguous Utopia. I'm not sure if I would even put this into the utopian genre just because yeah. it's so careful in how it approaches what humans would do to each other and how a society like this could go wrong. Yeah. yeah. Um my copy doesn't say the thing, or it doesn't have the bit about the utopia in the title. Um, I think one thing that's worth mentioning, I, first off, I agree it's not a utopian novel by any means, um, but there is kind of this perception amongst the anarchist community that they're trying to build a utopia. There's an acknowledgement that they haven't quite gotten there, but it is a goal of the characters, or some of the characters in the book at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some characters believe that they have reached utopia. Mm-hmm. It's not a... Mm-hmm. <laughs> Like people, it's not uniform in terms of the beliefs that the people within a society have. And while there is no functional government, that doesn't mean there aren't any functioning hierarchies that build themselves and try and justify their own existence. Bureaucracy. (laughs) Before we go into all this anthropological look at anarchism, I did want to talk a little bit about the approach to science in this novel because the main, Ooh, character Shevik, <laughs> the main character Shevik, he's a physicist who's working on trying to reconcile two vastly different approaches to time mm-hmm. and that will allow eventually the development of instantaneous communication. But we're not quite there yet. Mm-hmm. I think it's kind of brilliant how it's done in that Physics on this dual planet system went on a different path from physics on Earth and can't really be related to mm-hmm. our own scientific methods quite so much. It's more in line with natural philosophy mm-hmm. in the ancient world, and it folds in stuff like ethics mm-hmm. and other things that aren't qu- weren't folded into science mm-hmm. at the time in our world, which means that Le Guin can make it sound very deep and... Mm-hmm. Uh, high-minded without having to actually go into equations mm-hmm. and working out the hard <laughs> yep. the hard math behind the yep. problems that are being considered. It's really great how she does it, how she makes it seem so specifically scientific and yet vague enough that it's still a scientist did it when the, end, when the uh, eventual co- equation is uh, discovered. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, I, I think an important thing to keep in mind with this novel is um, it doesn't take the quote-unquote hard science approach to science fiction. It's very much science fiction as metaphor. A lot of Le Guin's books are more into societies and soft science than they are into what we consider mm -hmm. hard science mm -hmm. over here. But I think the problem that Shevik is tackling mm -hmm. in The Dispossessed is so relatable to us because it's a very old problem that the ancient Greeks were considering, which yes. is this big debate that happened over either everything moves or nothing moves. Yes, which is a pre-Socratic argument. Uh, two of the pre-Socratics had those opposing views. Um, do you have their names with you? I know, I think one begins with an H. I can't remember. I'm looking at my bookshelf, but I'm too far away to go get yeah, it. Yeah, so. that'd be a lot of work. <laughs> but yes, definitely. Change is the only constant, or it changes a complete illusion. There's one equation in here. I will read it out just, just for those of you out there who are physics-minded. Uh, T times S divided by 2 all over multiplied by capital R equals 0. So there you go. From this, we move but forward. But that has nothing to do with the high advanced physics that Shevik was doing. Nope. If I'm remembering This is part correctly. of the conversation like, back and forth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, what he's working on is called chronosophy. Yeah. Which should be self-explanatory. Yeah. The study of time. Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> and it's not that the problems that he's working on are entirely separate from the events that are going on around him. Again, because stuff like ethics mm -hmm. is folded into his own work. Mm -hmm. And his struggles in trying to get this done have to do with not only how esoteric it is. Well, actually, a lot with how esoteric it is because yeah. the people in the society around him on Anaris can't recognize what practical use this could have for them because yeah. they're not really interested in interstellar travel mm -hmm. or communication or conquering other worlds or anything like that. They just want to be left alone. Well, there, as you say, there are kind of two aspects to that. The first is, as you pointed out, they're not interested um, in other worlds. Their society is very insular. They don't really have anything that would be considered a legal structure, but the closest they have to that is a rule preventing other people from off-world coming to their planet and staying. That, like, that's about the closest they have to a law. The other part of it, too, is by the nature of how their society is structured and how their lives work, because like we said, it's a constant battle for survival, there is a certain utilitarian aspect to their... A uh, certain? This is a pretty overwhelming yeah. utilitarian approach. <laughs> There's a very utilitarian aspect to their structure, to their culture, to their society, where unfortunately they have to basically not disregard things that don't have an overt use, yeah. but relegate them to almost being less valuable or less important. Yeah, I, I do like how everyone has to do, like, grunt work shifts of time. Like, it's kind of ex expected, and everyone's like, yep, oh, here I was working on physics. Now I'm going to go plant trees for a couple months. <laughs> well, I actually thought one of the more brilliant observations about the society on Anaris is that they have to work. There's no separation, mm -hmm. at least as taught, between work and play. Mm -hmm. But the reason people are willing to do grunt work, even though there's no monetary mm -hmm. compensation and you're not really lauded for it or anything... Is because you're in your village with nothing to do. <laughs> the boredom seems to be the great motivator yeah. for the kind of jobs that mm -hmm. are not not great. People don't really want to do them, but that's yeah, it gets you out of the house to pass the time. <laughs> it's this is why I just can't see an R's as utopian because it would freaking suck to live there. Mm -hmm. Like it really would. I feel yeah. But that's because I'm a Not proprietary. only because it's a resource-poor world either, but yeah. <laughs> even though that's a big part of it. Yeah. I mean, the way the observations are framed in this book is we have chapters alternating between Shevik's early life or earlier life on Anares mm -hmm. and then his trip to Uras to do the rest of his physics work. Yeah, and then it becomes cyclical because yeah. <laughs> ultimately the... The, it's it's like it's set up sort of like row 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 your boat, where just as soon as sort of like the the Eurus narrative finishes is just when the early Anaris er narrative is getting close to the initial incident of that Eurus narrative. So technically, if you just keep reading it in a cycle, 
Yeah, first chapter yeah. takes you from Anares to Uras. Last chapter takes you back from Uras mm-hmm. to Anares. Yeah, I, I'm not sure if you have any notes on that or if it's a topic you wanted to cover, but I, I do think that's an important aspect of the book is the cyclical nature of the narrative structure. I, I'm not entirely sure what the point of that is meant to be, but I do think there is one there. It's cool beans is what it is. More than it's cool beans. <laughs> oh, well, I'm sorry. Not only does it reflect back on what Shevik is doing, <laughs> because he's also considering the cyclical nature of time, yeah. and that reflects back into the narrative. But, I mean, it reflects back into the narrative, and then if we just pause for five minutes, I'm sure I'll find an intelligent way to end this sentence. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. It's it's a cyclical narrative. Shevik is working on the nature of time. I think it's also a comment on politics Mm -hmm. or on society, in that one of the events Shevik gets involved in while on Eras is that another revolution happens. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's there for this one, and so the people involved in the revolution are very keen to have him involved. It's like, you're an anarchist. You're from this anarchist society. You're proof that this works. Please help us, mm-hmm. you know, have our revolution and make it good here. And so th- there's kind of that cyclical nature to politics of, you know, mm-hmm. okay, problems are addressed for a time, but eventually certain problems arise again and again and keep being dealt with and keep arising. Also, the chapters tend to reflect back on each other. Mm-hmm. They do, and- yeah. Like the Eurysti chapters, you'll read in the next Inari's chapters why something mm-hmm. there had happened. And right? and I, it, it, it's a very clever way of structuring it to keep you reading. It's like, oh, that's interesting. And then you get to the next chapter. And it, it's mm-hmm. not because they're not overtly connected. It's not like he, she can say or Le Guin can say, oh, and this is why that was that way in this chapter. But she sneaks little things into the narrative that kind of do that. So it keeps you reading because you're always curious, like, OK, how, how does how does this fit together? I think in some ways, like how with the um, the Book of the New Sun, we talked about it meriting rereading. When I got to the end, I was almost like, I could just start back at the first chapter. It would actually make as much sense to just have started this book in the middle, read to the end, and gone back to the beginning and just read forward and stopped in the middle. Because it doesn't matter, really, where you pick it up or drop it off. This I do know that some people have given a reading order for this. Oh, try it again by reading the Inari's chapters first and then reading the U.S. chapters afterwards. I don't eh. think the book would be as good no, to no. read it that so. way because I think the structure is so deliberate. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Like, I don't, I don't think reading the chapters chronologically would be a good idea. I think it would actually take a lot away from what the narrative does and what it's supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Like, there is... While it may not always be clear why it's a cyclical narrative, I do think it works best as a cyclical narrative to achieve whatever effect it's after. Mm -hmm. I guess that's one thing that doesn't come up all that often in discussions of Le Guin is how willing she was to play and still is in playing with the structures of her books. Mm -hmm. Because thinking back to just we wanted to talk about how this book was structured and then I thought about how the different Earthsea books are structured in wildly different ways mm-hmm. in how they deal with not only length of book, what's dealt with in the chapters, how much time passes, mm-hmm. approach to narrative, where that narrative's focused, hmm. that sort of thing, the kind of nuts and bolts, mm-hmm. technical okay. aspects of writing. No spoilers on Earth, so you haven't read it yet. Yeah, maybe we'll do that yeah. one in a bit. <laughs> yeah, structure's interesting, and it helps us get into this back and forth between two Again, wildly different societies. Equally, then, because it is kind of back and forth, it does kind of suggest the dialogue that the societies are having. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a good point. A, and also <laughs> Which the, only... the dialogues that um, Shevik has, as he's trying to argue physics, as Anaris as, yeah. as knows it. <laughs> because Shevik is the one who really opens up that communication as well. Mm-hmm. And that ends up being why he's the person who's chosen Mm -hmm. chooses to be the first person 150 years to make the trip back Mm -hmm. never 100 percent clear how anything gets chosen on anaris due to the structure of the world and that just seems to peter down through just to the structure of the people as well (laughs) kind of one of the underlining aspects of their society is because they're an anarchist society you can't really tell people what to do or what not to do barring a good reason. 
Like any any form of authority that exists exists because it needs to be there. Case in point, like a safety authority in a dangerous situation. Mm-hmm. Somebody who knows what they're doing and will say to you, "Don't do that. That'll get you killed." Like their authority is very much limited to where it's practical. Mm-hmm. So Shevik's able able to go because their society again not having any. Thing that constitutes a real government, mm-hmm. not having anything to constitute a way of telling him, no, you can't do this, it's left to be his decision. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, I think that's one thing that's kind of explored is theoretically anybody on the planet could have, or anybody on Inaris could have gone to Urus at any time. It's just nobody's thought to before. Mm. Well, they still try and throw a rock at Try. They still throw a rock at him. Yeah, so, so, oh, no, but they didn't even notice he was board. walking past because they're not organized. They're not used to organizing that kind of way. I mean, yeah, some people are definitely mad about it and act out somewhat violently to the extent they can. I think quite a lot of people are pretty angry about it. That's pretty clear. That he's an anarchist to the anarchists, kind of. Or anarchist. Well, Shevik is a well-chosen character here at illustrating why it might suck mm-hmm. to live in an anarchist society because you're trying to balance the needs of an individual against the needs of a society and when you have a brilliant physicist like Shevik what is he supposed to do to your society claims that everyone finds personal fulfillment in life what is he supposed to do when nobody wants what he can provide yeah Yeah, that was was the central issue as an example like um, the book talks about how people who do things that the society overall may not approve of are effectively shunned like there is They don't have a prison system. They don't have a legal system. But that's not to say they don't have ways of punishing and demonizing those who yeah. differ, in air quotes, from the norm. Yeah. I, like I, that I, shadowy asylum yeah. that we hear about. There is a shadowy asylum. And, I mean, there is an asylum, but they even say you can only enter it willingly. Nobody can force you to go into it. It's because most forms of violent crime are considered, in this case, are considered some form of mental illness. But even then, their society respects the concept of freedom so much, even people who it feels should be incarcerated, it won't forcefully incarcerate. Saying that they're there of free will is also dubious. It is. You drive them mad and then they have to go there. Yeah, it's... (laughs) I I agree with you. There's no overt authority saying, okay, you need to be here for your safety as well as ours. Mm -hmm. There's nobody to do that. But at the same time, the society itself does that by default, because like you said, it'll ostracize people to the point of driving them to that. I did enjoy, and I'm going to add to this, but I'm just going to take a slight tangent and come back to the main thread. Uh, I did enjoy that a way that people deal with like dissidents is just, when two people have an argument, you're perfectly allowed to beat the living shit out of each other. And then you kind of all go back, and it's kind of like, well, that's your issue, and it's nothing to do with the rest of society, and then you will reincorporate once you've done that egoizing part. <laughs> But kind of um, coming back to the whole the society does something, it's, it's, just, it's just, it's so funny because, yeah, there is no central government. There's definitely a civil service <laughs> is what's really kind of funny. Yeah. And that, that whether there's specific people who have taken up power within the civil service or the civil service in and through its own bureaucracy has become its own organism of power, there's still definitely suggestion in this book that having that civil service forces people to do things even though it's not for government it's for something else other than yourself so they try to mitigate the bureaucratic slant by having things like randomized computer mm-hmm. assignment of work and so on mm-hmm. but that doesn't help enough and it seems that <laughs> because people are people yeah. right and ultimately the there's a certain question at some point with, with uh, certain events that happen to one of the characters that it might not be always random. <laughs> like, I mean, again, we we talked about how, you know, this society exists under the idea that you can't force people to do something. So that's kind of why the bureaucracy is a bit weird in that bureaucracy might assign people to do something or post people to do something, but ultimately they can choose not to do it. What's the name for the group of people that just decided to not play by those rules? Like the real anarchists? The anarchists on? Shevik's group, yeah. No, um, not, not Shevik's, just like the- No, it's not Shevik's group. There are people who just don't the, work. They just don't oh. work and they just go and eat and hang out and do whatever they sort of feel like. They're like exiles or something like that. They oh, just, they're considered exiles from society because they're not like part of the social organism. Yeah, they, they literally <laughs> just build these random cabins out in the middle of nowhere and do whatever they want. 
And yet we learn later on that they do go into villages and people like having them around because they're storytellers. Yeah, and they're a breath of fresh air. <laughs> musicians, playwrights, that kind of thing. Yeah. Able to relieve some of that boredom that everyone is suffering. Oh my God, I'd rather. Oh my God, it's such a boring planet. <laughs> so tedious. I mean, from a sociology perspective, because I, I do think that's a big part of Le Guin's work. There is a branch of sociology just dedicated to studying the idea of deviance and conformity. And one of the underlying kind of principles of that is that no matter how positive a society might be, you need some form of deviance. And if that deviance doesn't come from within the society or from within the members of the society, the society will find a way to create it, which is one explanation. I'm not saying it's the only one or the best one, but that's one explanation for how you get things like the Salem Witch Trials. Well, thanks yes, for just one. taking us well, no, no, just, out of what we're talking about. No, 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 as an example, to kind of tie it to the book, it's like, okay, you've got a society without any real crimes, so they have to create some in the form of witchcraft. In The Dispossessed, you've got a society of anarchists, so they need to create deviants or, you know, force the creation of deviants, just because, in a way, those deviants fulfill a social function. Mm-hmm. Mm. I mean, one of the great tensions in this society and maybe any society is stagnation versus revolution refinement, some mm-hmm. kind of progress in some direction. Mm-hmm. Anares is definitely stagnating yep. <laughs> in the framework of this novel, but it's a stagnating society that was built on the idea of perpetual revolution. Mm-hmm. To quote from the book, mm-hmm. the society properly conceived was a revolution, a permanent one, an ongoing process. Mm-hmm. Which is funny because that's impossible. And well, whereas Uras is then also supposed to be a relatively stable place, but naturally people become dissatisfied with governments and have repeated um, insurgencies. Well, Uras is supposed to be closer to our world than it is to Anaris. Specifically, it's supposed to be closer to our world at roughly certain points in the 20th century. As the as the West. Yeah, I mean... Just saying. <laughs> no, not just the West. Um, no, China... No, China went through a huge uh, revolution in the 20th century. I think century. they're more Western in their in their ethos. Oh, sorry, yes. They're more Western in their... They're profitarians. They're capitalists. Yes. Okay, sorry. <laughs> well, I, I see what you're saying. I, they're more... AEO is what you're specifically yeah. talking about there, because there's another major state on your ass called Thu, yeah. and that's vaguely related to the Soviet Union in the 70s on yeah. our world, but it... It came from a different impulse in yeah. the history presented of your ass. Well, I, I think one thing to remember, or a good thing to keep in mind, is that science fiction, despite being set, you know, whenever, the future, the past, alternate timeline, mm-hmm. good science fiction is always talking about when it's written. Yeah. And you can, I mean, you can certainly see that this was written in the 70s. I mean, there's communists, there's anarchists, there's discontented masses, there's protests in the streets, there's, there's a, riots. There's a war going on in a country between your capitalists and your communists, That's but right. not actually in either of their countries, happening yeah, in a third state. The, the, there's a war being fought in a proxy state, Vietnam, right? Like. Mm-hmm. It's it's very much a product of the 70s. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's not to say by any stretch of the imagination that it still doesn't have value now. I did find a certain parallel with the left-handed darkness because in that one, the the two states on the planet seem to be one seem to be more kind of commie and one one more capitalist-y. And this is like, it's sort of like that, only instead of being all frozen and cold, it's two planets and one of them is deserty. So... (laughs) Yeah. Well, what's interesting about the <laughs> Soviet Union analog is that it was created out of the same revolution that brought about Anares. Mm-hmm. It's just two different paths in that mm-hmm. there are no other states in Anares that could stop this society from developing organically. Yeah. Well, on your ass, they're surrounded by other states that are making power grabs. Yeah. So how does... How does the society function there? It can't. It becomes another state. I, I think the other side of that, too, is just Le Guin being a little responsible and acknowledging where this could go. Because, I mean, yes, the ideal of a peaceful anarchist society sounds great, but unfortunately we have the historical precedent of that going in a very different and darker direction, namely the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. So well, I, I, I have do- to consider that the Soviet Union didn't come out of anarchism. Yeah. 
Communism, <laughs> anarchism, they're close enough that they might. Well, we might as well talk then about Odo and Karl Marx, because she's pretty... She, like, it's weird, because she's sort of like a Karl Marx figure, but I also get a little there, bit of an Ayn Rand out of her. She's more... <laughs> To give a very direct parallel, the ideas that Odo was disseminating, uh, Uras, hew very closely to the ideas of Peter Kropotkin, uh, early 20th century anar- Russian anarchist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and that's kind of another topic I wanted to bring up. I read an article by Louis Louis Call called Postmodern Anarchism in the Novels of Ursula K. Le Guin. Not a very good article, but <laughs> it did bring up a good point that in a lot of conversations around the uh, the dispossessed, people are really honing in on how the Society of Inares reflects Peter Kropotkin and classical early 20th century ideas of anarchism and not the other ideas and new ideas that she develops mm-hmm. in the novel for how a functioning anarchist society would work. Mm-hmm. It's all about how how does this hue to this idea and not what's different, mm-hmm. what's developing, what kind of uh, context is put in place for this society to even exist, which is it is a very edge case because, mm-hmm. oh, we'll send them off to another planet mm-hmm. where this is the only society that is there. And I mean, to the credit of the Anarans, it works not like it, it still works. In the sense that people aren't dying. <laughs> well, most people aren't dying. Yeah. I mean... But generally, people seem to sort of be able to find fulfillment in what they do. And a lot of that has to do with their early education. It's very Brave New worldy kind of that way. Um, because the way that you're brought up will very much influence how you look at things. But it's, it's, it, it's like, it's not, it's not entirely broken. It has issues, but it's, it's... It still functions, I think. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's a functioning society. It's a flawed society, as you know, all societies are. So I, I think, in that regard, it is presented very. I mean, it's theoretical because we we don't have an analog on Earth, but it is presented in a very realistic way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one of the reasons a society can build itself up is through the power of language. Uh, This is a really big theme in a lot of Le Guin's work. Mm -hmm. In this case, people on Inares speak a constructed language called Pravic, Mm -hmm. where you can't really express Mm -hmm. capitalist ideas Mm -hmm. in any way. um, She draws on George Orwell quite a bit for the language. Um, Just 1984, he talks about the idea that if you don't have a word for a concept, you can't express that concept. I mean, granted, he focuses more on in terms of emotion and human expression, but I mean, same thing, basically. It's like, if you don't have the language to express capitalist ideas, how do you even engage in any form of capitalism? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it is a funny point that they don't really have good curse words. Yeah, I know! <laughs> like, that's the first <laughs> thing you learn Because in any there's language. nothing explicitly forbidden or taboo. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's funny because it's like, there's... That's whenever you sort of like meet someone who speaks a language you don't, you always, you, that's usually what you ask them how to say is how do you swear in this language? Because you kind of want to, it's just a, a human impulse. <laughs> There's kind of a weird thing too about it. The kind of taboo words are what most make you part of the group in some ways. Yeah. Because I mean, everybody has their moments where whether or not they swear, they still want to express the sentiments that swearing expresses. Yeah, uh, he had to use um, Eurasti, I think. or uh, Yeah, they have to use words from that other group of colonists that I, was on the Ionic? planet before, is it Ionic? basically. I, I, Iotic? Iotic, that's what it is. Iotic. Iotic is what the people in Aeo speak, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and yeah, then it's it's like, he had to use a word which was basically hell, like, just to swear he didn't have a word. It was, it was really funny. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they do have possessive pronouns, but they're used for emphasis. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it even shows that when people are young, mm-hmm. they try and express, this thing is mine. And there's specifically an instance where Shevik yeah. is gets nudged out. Young little baby Shevik gets nudged out of a sunbeam. And he's like, my son! Yeah. You took away my son! And everyone gets mad at him. No, they don't get mad at him. They're like, you can't own things. What are you talking about, silly child? Yeah. Ownership's not a concept. <laughs> so, 
it's acknowledged here that there is a basic human impulse to want mm-hmm. to claim ownership over mm-hmm. something. But everything in this society is geared towards repressing the hell like out of that. Getting that thought out of you. Yeah, it's funny because another moment where that's kind of hinted at is I think it's Shevik's reflecting on the idea of, you know, just having things that you like, like your favorite pencil or a notebook mm-hmm. where you've collected your own thoughts. It's like, okay, yes, everything belongs to everybody, but there are still the small personal things that people cling to. The orange blanket? Yeah, the orange blanket. The orange blanket's a big deal. <laughs> or the mobiles. Oh, yeah, the occupations of space, or what is it called? I think. Yeah, yeah they're, they're just, they're crafts, like, that yeah. uh, Shevix, well, I mean, they don't have marriage in the society, but that is, in quotes, your wife makes, just to yeah. kind of decorate the living area. They're basically those things that you see sold at kiosks and malls that actually look really ugly, but... That's what they are. <laughs> she's creating crafts. She's using them to decorate. But yeah. at the same time, even though she's made them in a weird way, she doesn't have ownership of them per se. Yeah. It's not only personal items either, because the main impulse for Shevik to want to go to Uras is he wants to be recognized for his ideas. Yeah. He, he wants to claim ownership of an idea. But- and yeah. the injustice that he and Takver, mm-hmm. his wife, express over mm-hmm. what was happening on Anares against Sabul is because Sabul was appropriating mm-hmm. work that Shevik or his other students had done at the university and was presenting them as at least co co made by him and taking yeah. credit for it Which- because. You couldn't publish unless you went through Sabool. So it's kind of like no ownership, eh? Right. Um, but equally, I think... No hierarchy. No hierarchy, eh? But Sabool controls who can publish what because he influences yeah. uh, the one... Printing piece. press. Well, um, but equally, I also think Shevik was looking for um, the the, dial- the discourse of physics, which he could not find at his level on Anare's. It required going to Urus, and then also, which is a great bit because Einstein's work shows up on Urus, and I think they called it Einstein. Eisenstein, Eisenstein, or something like that. It was great. Eisenstein, yeah. yeah. So I was like, oh, that is totally what you'd get out, get out of Einstein if you played the telephone game long enough. <laughs> and then his theories of relativity, and then all this stuff kind of all molds together in the political landscape and in the political landscape in his mind to then allow him to create the Ansible. Which is funny because he goes there and knowing fully that he doesn't have the answer and pretending that he does and then just kind of bums around under a swirl until he figures it out. (laughs) Goes to swanky parties, yeah. Yeah, well it's... Oh, the swanky parties. (laughs) It's very much the idea of ideas needing dialogue to develop. Mm-hmm. No matter how smart you are, no matter how good an idea you may have, it, it can't just develop in isolation. You need to expose it to criticism and challenge and other ideas to find out how it can evolve and become better. This is why philosophers wrote letters to each other a lot. To yeah, say. and I mean, when <laughs> Shevik goes to Uras, he's initially pretty impressed with how intellectual discourse is handled in the university system mm-hmm. there. Of course, that's because they're not showing him the less savory aspects of their own society, and he's cognizant of that. He was, but then he also wasn't. Like, he knew that it was going to be... He didn't. I think he didn't realize until the fellow from Thun told him how much he was being played by them. Well, he couldn't, he couldn't really conceptualize yeah. power plays like that. Yeah, because he'd have no word for it in Pravik. For one thing, and then he'd never have seen anything like it. Other than, like, Sabul controlling, like, a printing press is one thing. Yeah, but but. Sab- Sabul's a really mediocre, yeah. kind of lazy person. Yeah, I sort of liked him as a sort of a, a croc physicist. I thought that was funny. <laughs> well, I mean, there is the concept of a power play between individuals where you've got one person controlling access or a pathway. And then there's the kind of power plays on a social level, which get much more intricate and complex. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, you've got one person controlling one series of ideas for their benefit or for their credit or glory or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. And then you've got a society controlling several aspects 
of social interaction, of discourse, of behavior for a multitude of reasons. I like that um, quite a lot of what, because uh, ultimately, spoiler alert again, um, Shevik gives the idea to the of the Ansible to human uh, everyone to everyone to everyone um, through using using some. Terran humans. The, ter- the Terran ambassador. Yeah, there, there's yeah. a Terran ambassador. He, Shevik, ends up going to the Terran embassy at one point, basically to escape after he becomes a fugitive. Mm-hmm. And um, they agree to help him by broadcasting his equations to everybody. Yeah. To the Hang, to the Terrans, to the Ur- the people on Urus. That way, the, they're Setians. Setians are the Urasti and Urus. Well, they call themselves that now because Terrans call them that. Yeah. Yeah, and to the Seti. <laughs> so it, it's like, okay, yeah. If people are, if somebody's going to benefit from this, let everyone benefit. And, but but in in doing that, it's ultimately it's like this is actually just a big patent war. Patent war. Yeah, it's a patent <laughs> battle, is what it is, is who's, who gets the patent on it. But out of doing this, what we're going to ultimately get is the Ecumen, which yeah. is the overarching society of anthropologists and scientists, Yay. explorers that we meet in later novels, and which provides an alternate view of freedom and cooperation to what was found on Uras and even what's found on Anares. Yeah. And that it allows free, complete free communication mm-hmm. across the universe. Mm-hmm. Which is pretty cool. It is pretty cool. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, kind of a little bit Isaac asimov in terms of, of you know, socialists, uh, not socialists, um, sociology. <laughs> I, I, think, um, I think one thing to keep in mind with this book, I, I think it's pretty clear Le Guin is not for either side in the debate, if you will. I, I think it's... Re- oh, I think she is... Yeah, no, just hear, hear me on this one. towards one more than the other. Oh, no, I, I definitely think she's leaning towards the anarchists. But I think she's doing so with the acknowledgement that it's n- still not going to be a perfect society. I think her, the kind of expression of the book is, this is a better alternative to what we have. It's not perfect, but it's at least better. Well, we've been talking on really abstract terms on the dispossessed, and I do feel we should reassure people that, no, it's not quite so up there. There are really relatable characters here that are handled really well. Yeah. Like the relationship between Takver and Shevik, which I thought was yeah. really well done. It was. And, and their daughter. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Shevik is, despite being this brilliant physicist, he is a very human character. Mm-hmm. He he does have concerns for his family. He does have concerns for himself, for his work. I mean, yes, for family his... Family with an interesting concept where nobody owns anything. But anyway. Yeah, but like, he does have concerns for society and his community. He does want to do things to help make everyone's lives better and mm-hmm. to care about people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's also... Ultimately, his mother is part of the forces trying to stop him from leaving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, his mother becomes effectively one of his greatest adversaries. Mm-hmm. And I realize it sounds Freudian at first, but... Then it really is, and you just have to move on and pass well, no, that point it, and it, realize it, that that's okay. Kind of, <laughs> in the context of the society, though, it works really well because, she, yes, his mother gave birth to him, but his mother wasn't there for most of his life. Mm-hmm. She had to leave for various things to do with her own choices and her own work. So, mm-hmm. I mean, he, he does have that kind of, I guess for lack of a better term, anxiety regarding his mother. Well, had to leave? Nobody has to do anything, kind of. She, sorry, she had to leave to fulfill her own motives. Not she because, left, is I think all you can really say accurately okay, she, about it. She chose to leave because... Things. To do things she wanted, she had to. Yeah. I mean, there is a period where people have to do things because Anaris goes through a drought and that everyone is going to die and necessity sort of overtakes everything else. Which was an interesting time, actually, because it did have this sort of everybody sort of bonded together because it's like, all right, let's all be anarchists together right now. And it was sort of just a really funny moment. <laughs> Yeah, and how they're all, we have to do this so that we can show those Eurasti that we're so great. Yeah. Like, yeah, there, there is that weird kind of conflict there still. He's like, screw you, Eurus. <laughs> yeah, th- there are no others on Anares except for, you know, those people on Eurus. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of this weird way that um, 
tension is exercised between nation states when they lack sports teams. Yeah. So I think that's a good place to leave off on talking about the dispossessed. Yeah. yeah I, I think um, just kind of one final closing point I, I'd like to make is like we talked about when you and I discussed um, the man in the high castle, despite the ideas we're getting into, it is a very readable book. It is a mm-hmm. very good book with very good characters and a very interesting story. I mean, we didn't yeah. focus on those elements, but they're certainly there. And even if you read it for just those, it's worth the read. That's true of any Le Guin book, mm-hmm. I find, is that you're going to have very grounded human characters mm-hmm. that are imbued with really complex emotional inner lives. Despite the highfalutin ideas, yeah. Yeah. And... Despite my spoiler alert at the beginning, we actually really haven't given anything away. I mean, it's sort of you can't give away this book because... The plot is not the main thing we're reading <laughs> I for. Mean, yeah, even going in, you're like, oh, the Ansible's going to get invented. Doesn't matter how that happens. The process is the more important and more interesting part mm-hmm. of this book. Before we go, I uh, just want to bring up Le Guin's legacy in that she did turn 86 a few days ago. Happy what? birthday, Le Guin. You don't have to be happy because that's a, a socially constructed concept from a movie in 1920s. But not too long ago, at some talk somewhere, she brought up the idea. Like, yeah, I don't know exactly. Yeah, very specific there. <laughs> Recently, she brought up that when she's gone, how long will it be before her works get written out of the science fiction canon? Because there are people who were popular at the same time that this book came out, like mm-hmm. James Tiptree Jr. or mm-hmm. Joanna Russ, mm-hmm. who were really influential and well-regarded, and then after they died have just completely left the mm. greater mainstream science fiction conversation afterwards. I mean, mm-hmm. Joanna Russ is usually is remembered by academics who've read her nonfiction work like how to suppress women's writing but she's not really talked about in terms of her fiction outside of very small circles at james tiptree jr that case is just that her estate won't really republish anything her real name was alice sheldon you know i think i've seen her books on (laughs) shelves but you know what I, i don't i don't think le guin needs to worry to be perfect, no, no, just, I, I, I do think her work has become canonical enough. I've heard enough, I've heard enough references to her work, or I've heard enough authors in other genres refer to her work as an inspiration that I, I don't think, if she, do, if her work does go away, it's not going to be permanently. Um, you know, following his death, Roger Zelazny's work was hard to find for a few years, but it's being reprinted now. I think the, the, I think the absolute worst case for Le Guin would be that. She faded for a little while, and then she came back in a big way. But I honestly don't think we'd ever get to that. I think her work has become too important and too meaningful to fade like that. Yeah, I can't imagine discussing the history of science fiction from Mm -hmm. this point without mentioning her. She is, if not the best, one of the best science fiction writers of the latter half of the 20th century. Oh, easily. The past past 50 years, basically, she's on the top of the pile. Well, I mean, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I think what makes Le Guin special is you could even scratch science fiction from that sentence and it still holds up. Mm-hmm. Like, she's been hugely influential above and beyond the genre. And, I, 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 again, I just can't see a world where her work is allowed to fade into obscurity. I think yeah. in this, in kind of the new media world, she's been active enough that I think echoes are going to keep resounding for a while. Do not worry, Ursula. As said to Achilles at the beginning of that terrible movie, Troy, immortality and stories and stuff. Well, again, I, I, I would like to echo Marie's sentiment there that if on the odd chance Ursula K. Le Guin ever does listen to this podcast, first off, hello, thank you. <laughs> Secondly, um, you've got at least three readers who are going to do their damnedest to make sure your work doesn't fade. And even if it does, hey, we all die eventually anyway, and we will just and our species will probably fade at some point too. So there you go. It's all despair. <laughs> uh, that a positive <laughs> note. It's realistic. Uh, if, if you're interested in reading more about this world, there's a short story in The Wind's Twelve Quarters, which is, a, I think, the first anthol- or collection that came out with the Gwyn's work called The Day Before the Revolution. 
That is about Odo on the day before the big revolution that started the society we find in cool, this really? novel. I, I think that brings us to the end of our gushing. Yep. Just possess. <laughs> Read it. Yeah. Read anything by Le Guin. I've read everything I could get by him. We didn't talk about the title. Go ahead. Because it's called The Dispossessed. I was saying to Corey, because instead of being like unpossessed or like having, having, um, possession taken away from you, it's, it's dis because it's defective in certain ways. That was kind of it, really. It's, it's a short title that manages to touch on so many mm-hmm. different things in this book. Mm-hmm. Like, Shevik is dispossessed. The language he speaks doesn't have possessives in it. Yeah. That is thus dispossessed. Yeah. He's a society. People are exiled and dispossessed. He's in a society where people don't have possessions. Yeah. But equally, though, it, 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 it reeks of disenfranchised. Indeed. Oh, and I, I think yeah. that's very intentional. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's a great title, and yeah. a great title from a great author. And a great book. Thank you for <laughs> listening to the One Last Sketch podcast. You can listen to past episodes by going to onelastsketch.wordpress.com and clicking on one of the category links that says podcasts. You can also find us on iTunes and on Stitcher Radio. Where can we find you, Marie? You can find me over at www.yatropexy.wordpress.com. Or I'll probably pretty shortly be writing something about Sarah Kane because just saw a piece by her. So cool. Art stuff happens there. A lot of medicine kind of stuff, too. I'm sorry. It occurs. And to clarify, there should be three W's at the beginning, not the two Marie included. I was seeing if you were paying attention. You could also follow me on Twitter at One Last Sketch, where I don't tweet much at all. But, you know. You are not a twit. <laughs> you do. No twitting occurs. <laughs> If you like this podcast, recommend it. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and have a great day, you dirty proprietarians. <laughs>